Hello, and welcome to Talking in Vain, a podcast of the Infusion Nurses Society. I'm Dawn Barrent, the Clinical Education and Publication Manager for INS. My guests today are James Sheets and Luba Sovaleski. We are going to be discussing the IVIG shortage. Welcome, James and Luba. Thank you, Dawn. It's great to be here. Thank you. So I'm going to ask each of you, and I'll start with James first. I'm going to ask you to tell a little bit about yourselves and the work that you do. All right. Thank you, Don. Um, uh, thank you for the invitation to join. Um, but my name is James Sheets. I am the uh, CEO and founder of CSI Pharmacy. Um, I'm, a, I'm a clinical pharmacist and have worked in the field of uh, IG therapy for almost 20 years now, coming up on 20 years. Um, our company, CSI Pharmacy, is a nationwide provider of specialty products, uh, injectables. Um, we, we primarily focus on patients with rare and chronic illnesses. Uh, that, that requires specialized touch, and IG therapy is the largest portion of that. Thank you. Luba, how about you? Hi, Don, and thanks again for having us. It's a pleasure to be here with James today, and um, I, too, am a pharmacist by training, and my expertise has taken me through various fields in healthcare. Um, including clinical, education development, pharmaceutical industry, and now uh, I am the founding executive director of the Immunoglobulin National Society, or IGNS. And IGNS is a professional association uh, for physicians, uh, nurses, pharmacists, and all healthcare professionals uh, that's dedicated to the advancement of IG therapy practice. And IGNS provides uh, systematic and advanced education dedicated to biologics and IG. Uh, we have uh, developed standards of practice in this field, and we provide certification and various professional resources for healthcare professionals, and we also focus on awareness and advocacy efforts. And we work uh, very closely with other healthcare professional and trade organizations such as uh, the Infusion Nursing Society, so it's a pleasure to um, participate in this podcast and various other um, collaborative programs that we've engaged in in the past. Well, thank you. It is really my pleasure to have each of you here with me today. So let's dig into our topic. Um, first of all, I would like you to describe what IG therapy is and who are the primary users. Okay, thanks, Don. Uh, so IVIG therapy, or IG therapy, um, IG stands for uh, immunoglobulins or immune globulins. Uh, there's two major modes of uh, administration, one of those being IVIG, or intravenous immune globulin therapy, the other being SCIG, or subcutaneous immune globulins. <clears throat> so when you think about immune globulins, um, you know, really the simplest way to define them is their antibodies. Uh, you know, you think back to immunology and you have, you know, five major types of antibodies. You have IgA, IgD, IgE, IgG, and IgM. Well, the primary component in uh, Ig therapy is IgG. And uh, IgG is kind of the workhorse of the immune system. Uh, it's involved in uh, recognizing foreign uh, pathogens and uh, uh, getting the immune system to act upon those pathogens and uh, is a critical critical part of preventing infections and treating infections as well as other um, other processes. Um, 
you know, in terms of where it comes from, it's actually a plasma product. Uh, you know, so it all starts with plasma donations. Um, once that plasma is donated, it's actually uh, just a portion of that, that, that plasma proteins that, that, that we're really interested in therapeutically. Um, and, and part of those proteins, uh, uh, about 38% of those that come from plasma is immunoglobulins. Um, it's used to treat uh, a variety of disorders, so it's used to treat uh, in, in immune replacement therapy and primary immune deficiencies. And I know recently you had on uh, um, the IDF on your, uh, on your podcast, and that was pretty inter- interesting. A lot you can learn about primary immune deficiency there. Um, but also uh, in a lot of autoimmune disorders now is a real growing uh, field where we see more and more uh, IG usage. Um, and in, this place, in, in that place, it functions more immunomodulatory. Mm-hmm. Um, where, where you know, the body is uh, creating an autoantibody that's attacking self instead of attacking something foreign. Foreign, and the IG therapy helps uh, neutralize and lower those autoantibodies. Uh, and it can also be used in secondary amino deficiencies like HIV and uh, with oncology medications. Uh, so a variety of uses that's growing. Very good. Thank you. So my next question is, describe the current product shortage situation. Now, this is something that um, we talk about a lot, and we have had problems um, meeting the needs of our patients with a variety of products on the market. Um, But today we're specifically talking about IVIG, the current shortage, and the situation that that, um, is attached to that. So I think that um, for us to talk about um, tightening of supplies um, or shortages, uh, we really have to look at overall uh, a high-level picture of what goes on and how we um, go from collecting plasma from healthy donors all the way to manufacturing. And we know that um, it, it is really important to understand that IG therapy is a biologic, so it is not um, something that could be manufactured like um, other medications, and it is a very lengthy manufacturing process. And um, as James mentioned, IG therapy is derived from human plasma, which is the liquid component of our blood um, that contains various uh, proteins. In fact, a lot of these proteins are used to treat a variety of other disorders, not just immune deficiency and various autoimmune disorders, but also genetic lung disease, trauma, burn, shock, uh, rheumatologic, hematologic disorders. So we utilize a lot of these proteins for a variety of conditions. So the plasma um, that is collected, and that's key, right? So we have to start with the raw material, and that's the plasma then that goes through a very rigorous manufacturing process. If you think about it, this is a blood-derived product, so steps are absolutely critical uh, to being placed to protect uh, and prevent any kind of pathogen transmission. Um, So uh, really um, labor-intensive process that takes about 9 to 12 months to go from a plasma donation to uh, manufactured fractionated IG therapy in a bottle, if you will. And so um, you can 
foresee that any issue within this manufacturing, um, these manufacturing steps could delay production of a product. Mm -hmm. And so, um, in addition, obviously, uh, we are in a very stringent regulatory environment, so there are a variety of regulatory issues that uh, go on with the FDA and other agencies that could delay approvals of certain therapies uh, that were counted on uh, for our supply. There are some products that are removed from uh, market for whatever uh, regulatory reasons there may be, and then they return to the market. And so um, our plasma, the regulatory issues, manufacturing issues, all of these attribute to our supply situation and can also cause a uh, tightening of supply or a shortage. Mm -hmm. um, shortages are also um, tracked by the Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research, CBER, which is the arm of FDA that deals with biologics uh, for approval, for research, for any kind of supply issue. So um, our listeners can... Um, can look uh, the CBER website, which is under the FDA um, website, and, and find more current information mm -hmm. if they're interested. Mm -hmm. But um, currently, we are experiencing um, a shortage in several brands. Um, the, those are all listed on the FDA website, and there are a variety of reasons uh, for why we are here. Today, uh, what's important to note is this isn't a new or novel situation. In uh, our James and I have been in this industry for around 20 years each, and we've seen this multiple times. So this is a cyclical situation, but one obviously that affects patients' access to product, but also causes um, cannot get access to the same brand of therapy, which I think actually leads us to um, a point that I'd like to uh, talk about uh, a little bit further, is the importance of individualization of therapy and importance right. of understanding the differences between IG brands, which I know James is really passionate about, and he was yeah. on the committee that um, participated in writing of the IGNS standards. So I would like James to actually take that on, um, if you don't mind, James. Thank you. No, absolutely. Thank you, Luba. Um, yeah, that's kind of my soapbox. It's uh, what I really enjoy working with is um, product selection and what are the differences in formulations between the various IG products. And you know, right now we have about 10 brands. So di 10 different brands of intravenous immune globulins or IVIG that's available uh, with about three, uh, sub three, three brands that are uh, only subcutaneous. And then some of those, a few of those IVIG brands can also be administered subcutaneous. Uh, the manufacturers have really tweaked their formulations over the decades. Um, you know, and, and years ago, there's, and there's still this kind of this stigma associated with IG therapy. Um, because the initial formulations did, they called more renal failure and more side effects, but manufacturers have continued to work on these formulations in an effort to improve uh, the product safety. Um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, in each of these brands, um, um, they're not interchangeable because the formulations are a little bit different and the propri proprietary, depending on the manufacturer, the product is different. 
and, and yeah, the primary component of all of them is IgG. Um, so it is the uh, IgG immunoglobulins, um, but they differ in the amount of uh, monomers and dimers and aggregate concentrations. Uh, they differ in the amount of IgA and IgM content. Um, sometimes different stabilizers are used and uh, different additives and different levels of impurities. And these differences, uh, they result in different side effects profiles. So, uh, you know, so from, from what we can see, we generally consider um, the various brands to be equally effective overall, you know, although you can see, as Luba mentioned, uh, individual differences for sure. Um, but they have a different um, side, effect pro side effect profile. Uh, you know, so for our pharmacy, when we've worked through this current tightening of the market, you know, it's, it's kind of put a strain on, on the pharmacists and the nurses uh, in our organization because used to all products were uh, have been, and we've been pretty fortunate over the past few years to have kind of a glut of product, and we could order on demand for a patient. Um, uh, but what's, what's changed recently with the tightening is that we've had to focus a lot on getting brand when we can, and then um, uh, recently having to find new brands for a patient. And uh, when we do that, we kind of take them back to the, and Luba mentioned, mentioned the IGNS standards, we kind of go right back to the IGNS standards through the entire treatment planning process and, and uh, begin anew. And we'll look at the care plan for that patient, um, look at the electronic medical record, um, and we're looking for, you know, have they ever been on IG before? And if so, what was the brand? Um, did they tolerate that um, if we're unable to get the brand that they've been using? You know, so that's kind of an important question for clinicians to, to go back to. Um, but then it's, it's assessment again, you know, uh, what are the patient's risk factors for adverse effects and their comorbidities? You know, do they have heart failure or are or, or they diabetic, um, renal disease? Um, and, and basically, depending on, on that overall clinical picture, we can try to select a, a product that's most appropriate for them. And so if we have a patient who's been doing well on a, on a particular brand, um, the, it's the only brand they've been infused, um, um, they really don't have any comorbidities that would point them one way or the next, we have a lot of options. And what we like to do is, you know, kind of choose a product that is available that has uh, similar formulation characteristics to the one the patient's been on. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so we'll, we'll compare those and, and choose something maybe with the same stabilizer, maybe the glycine stabilized, uh, uh, just like the product they were receiving, uh, similar, uh, similar osmolarity and, and uh, um, IgA content and um, factors such as that. Okay. So um, we yeah, understand. I, I would add. Oh, I'm sorry. No, please <laughs> go ahead, Luba. I was just going to add that. Um, just to continue James's point, that obviously the position of IGNS is a judicious use of um, IG in evidence-based indications, i.e. using the product where we know there's efficacy, um, we know that there's a variety of FDA-approved indications. There's also a large number of um, off-label indications where the level of evidence is very high and very strong. And so we promote the use of IG where we know based on research and um, clinical practice uh, that there is efficacy. And especially in those times of tightening and shortage of supply, 
we want to see a very judicious use of IG. Mm-hmm. Secondly, obviously, as um, James pointed out, IGs, IG therapies uh, are not considered interchangeable by the FDA and other regulatory agencies. And so it is very important to keep a patient on the same brand without switching unnecessarily because it has some dire um, consequences on their tolerability and overall patient success. However, if if there are times like we are in right now when that just isn't possible, then we have uh, very specific guidances uh, for treatment of patients where you, if you are switching brands, you need to treat a patient as IG naive, as if they've never received therapy before, and there are specific protocols outlined in the standards of practice that IGNS um, has developed uh, that um, provides nurses a uh, protocol for infusion of uh, an IG naive patient. So uh, those must be uh, followed in order to prevent adverse events and ensure patients' um, best outcomes and overall uh, success with therapy. And so this is a very peculiar situation where um, we cannot recommend switching brands, but sometimes we don't have a choice and we understand that. And for that reason, we have the supporting documentation and supporting guidance as in the standards that um, that provide that information to healthcare professionals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about clinical management and what clinicians and the team can do to help support patients during times like these where there may be changes and there may be a difference in, um, like you said, the tolerability, perhaps maybe not an outcome, but just how it feels to receive that um, infusion and the type of reactions that come after that. Um, What can we do to support our patients? Yes, I think that's a terrific question, and it's obviously something that, um, you know, right now we're dealing with on a daily basis uh, within the pharmacy and within the field, you know, as we work with our our nursing staff and the pharmacy staff collaborating together uh, with the physician on on what to do if a patient's product is not available. I mean, I want to definitely build on something Luba mentioned, uh, which is reviewing the IGNS standards of care um, as a resource for your organization to uh, – uh, to create a process and procedure for handling brand switches because the information is there in a logical manner laid out uh, with, with best practices. Um, you know, and another thing about the, the standards themselves is the standards are a little over 100 pages. Uh, something I always like to point out is the first half of the standards is some of the best information you can really find um, on IG in general, uh, from manufacturing to administration to, to side, effect, side effect profiles to uh, clinical management, uh, ongoing monitoring. Um, it's just a terrific resource. Um, yeah, so what, so what a clinician would need to know in the field is they need to view it, um, as Luba was mentioning, um, as if the patient was IG naive, as if it was the first infusion of IG they'd ever received. So you want to start out and... Um, 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 after you know, looking to see what product is available, you want to start out with the minimum infusion rate. Um, you will uh, then taper that up 
It'll be important that uh, the nurse in the field is uh, checking vital signs at each increase, um, monitoring the patient for adverse reactions, um, and then managing those appropriately according to the, uh, the orders um, if, if they are to occur. Um, and, and then also I think uh, you kind of returned back to follow-up evaluation where, you know, after the infusion is over, um, you're following back up with that patient to see, you know, how are you feeling? Mm -hmm. Has there been any adverse reactions you, you've experienced? And uh, if so, documenting those uh, in the care plan, um, working together with the multidisciplinary team on what what options do we have going forward or uh, does there need to be um, any recommendations made to the prescriber now? Um, um, you know, so the ongoing monitoring, um, you, you almost really hit a reset button and go back as if it was the first infusion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when we're arranging an appointment Absolutely. with a patient, it seems it would be important to tell them, now this, this um, appointment is probably going to take a little bit longer um, than your previous appointments have been because we're, we're starting over. We're kind of starting at the beginning. There may be a longer chair time. For this Actually, this is a, it's a great point. A patient education, I think, is critical. And with IG therapy in general, um, we have a group of patients, and this is obviously a broad generalization, but we have a group of patients that are very well educated about their disease state um, as well as uh, their therapy. But um, that doesn't mean that the need for patient education and communication goes away. In fact, managing patients' expectations can be critical in times mm -hmm. like these when mm -hmm. therapies are being switched. Patients have to understand the reason and um, understand what, what side effects or adverse reactions to look for and to report. Um, there are some reactions with IG therapy that are immediate and there are some that we know that are delayed and mm -hmm. can occur within 72 yeah. hours post-infusion. And that's critical. And we, with so much variability, even within the same brand, there's lots of lot variability. But when you're yeah. switching brands, uh, you, we cannot um, make any assumptions. And we have to be ready for everything. And that means educating the patients. Mm -hmm. um, and... You know, there's some reactions with IG that are mild, but they can also range to moderate and to severe. Certainly. And there are some adverse reactions like a septic meningitis that sometimes uh, require clinical follow-up um, as an inpatient. And so that sometimes is related to brands. In fact, brand switches occur frequently due to a septic meningitis. It's one of those very... It's a self-limiting, but a very se severe um, reaction that uh, patients really um, uh, that that push patients uh, to switch to a different therapy or from IV IG to sub Q, and so that patient education outcomes and, and setting expectations is really important. Mm -hmm. Obviously, as is um, communication with a prescriber. Um, and a lot of times, um, you know, when we're dealing with physicians or prescribers who have a lot of patients on IG therapy, they will be very knowledgeable. But there are others who treat just several patients with IG, and we 
cannot assume that they have all the information. And so for providers um, like James's pharmacy um, that really have a lot of this in-house expertise and knowledge over the years in IG therapy, I think it's really important to have that communication channel going with the prescriber as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. No, I think that's an excellent point, Luba. Uh, starting with the patient education, I mean, one thing I can tell you, um, you know, from my experience over the years, um, with, at different times we've seen tightenings in the market. market uh, the patients have a lot of anxiety right now. Um, even those, even those who have been uh, receiving their infusions, they haven't had an infusion change. They've been on the same product. You know, they're hearing uh, out in the marketplace. They're hearing there's this shortage. There's this shortage, and they're nervous. Am I going to get get my therapy? Am I going to get my infusion? Um, so, um, yeah, just realize that you know, as a clinician, and, and when you visit with these patients and you're educating them, you let them know, you know, yes, this is the situation, but you know, uh, this is the best plan that your physician and the team has come up with um, 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 for you. And then if you have someone who's experienced adverse reactions to another brand, I think that's where that product selection really comes into play. And, and you want to uh, definitely not use the product they, they had a problem with. But those patients, more than any, are going to have uh, a lot of anxiety. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we've talked about the importance of the of plasma collection that we need a human donor we've talked about the fact that it's 9 months to 12 months from that person's vein to the recipient's vein of IVIG therapy and we've talked about um, the multifactorial reasons why shortages come into play is there anything else that we haven't discussed that we really should address in this conversation? Well, what I'd like to add is um, that the importance of donating plasma should not be underestimated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This entire industry depends on donors who provide uh, plasma and then we are able to manufacture these products. Without our donors, we couldn't manufacture IG therapy um, because um, IG comes from healthy donors. It mimics uh, the repertoire of a normal immune system, um, no normal quote, unquote. Mm -hmm. And so we actually require... Um, a large number of donors for each batch of IG therapy. In fact, um, each lot can, is derived from a minimum of, of 1,000 donors and up to 60,000 donors. And so if you think about these numbers, it is really important. And I'd like to um, encourage everyone to visit donatingplasma.org. It is a great wealth of information about plasma and the donation process. Um, I think there are a lot of misconceptions around plasma donation. It is not like donating whole blood. It actually takes quite a bit longer. It takes a couple of three hours to donate plasma Mm -hmm. because the cells, the red blood cells, white blood cells, uh, they're reinfused back. And 
because of that, uh, the donor feels much better, and the donor can donate plasma up to twice in an eight-day period. And so um, many plasma centers uh, actually pay donors for their time, um, and it's, uh, it's just something of a critical importance right now when demand for plasma therapies just continues to grow as we know more and more about clinical applications and more products are coming into the market. So I really encourage everyone to visit donatingplasma.org and finding a donation center and considering donating plasma. Uh, it is really a life-saving effort that we all need to be part of in this industry. Thank you, Lupa, for bringing that up. Very key message. James, how about you? Do you have any closing discussion that we should include in our conversation today? Yeah, I, I think we touched on really, you know, kind of the goals of the uh, podcast. Um, I would just reiterate what, what Luba just said about donating plasma um, and what you, you know, you can find a plasma uh, center near you on the donatingplasma.org website. You know, so it's a, a resource to find where can I go if, if you do um, take this call to action to go donate plasma. Um, and then I want to reiterate for clinicians in the field, um, if, if your organization does not have a copy of the Immune Globulin National uh, Society's uh, standards of practice, IG standards of practice, um, speak with your uh, management team, leadership team, your clinical team, um, and say, hey, this is something I think could help advance our care of our patients. Um, the information that's in, in those standards is, uh, uh, is valuable. I call it GOLD. We use it in our uh, organizations to train new clinicians and so new pharmacists who have recently graduated or just entering the IV field uh, starting to practice uh, with immune globulin therapy uh, those standards are really a great resource to go to where they can learn um, a lot about the industry all in one place um, so I'd encourage you as clinicians to, to get familiar with those standards and and use it to advance the practice at your facilities and your organization okay James and Luba, thank you so much for being my guest today on this podcast. Um, you have uh, really helped clarify things for us in a difficult, ch challenging situation. I'm happy to share donatingplasma.org also in the show notes, as well as your organization's website, um, so that people have a place to go when they're done listening here today. Um, so this concludes this session of Talking in Vain with the Infusion Nurses Society. James and Luba, thank you so much for being our guests today. Thank you for having us, Dawn. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Dawn, and thank you to INS to, for hosting this and inviting us. You're welcome. All right. <laughs>